You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah. Welcome back. You are with Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. It's with great pleasure I introduce to you Helen Taylor. She's the Vice President of Impact for Exodus Cry. Helen, it is great to chat to you this morning. What is Exodus Cry? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It's a joy and honour to speak with you um, about this topic that I'm so tremendously passionate about. And our organisation, Exodus Cry, um, it, it refers to the idea of Exodus exiting the biblical story of the Israelites exiting slavery and exploitation and the cry related to advocates standing in solidarity with those who um, wish to get out of a situation of exploitation. And we exist to break the cycle of commercial sexual exploitation. We exist to to fight for the full abolition of sex trafficking, uh, whether that takes 10, 20 years, or we spend the rest of our lives fighting for that. And we make films, documentaries. Our goal is to really shift the culture, change the narrative around the conversation around commercial sexual exploitation. Uh, We use short videos and do viral campaigns. And then we also provide trauma therapy for survivors and do outreach wherever the sex industry exists. So we have that direct service piece, but the longer you work with those exploited in the sex industry, the more passionate you become about prevention and looking at the systemic issues and asking the deeper questions of how do we uproot sex trafficking um, fully um, as a system. So those are the kind of questions we're asking. We're based in California. I'm originally from the UK, but live in sunny Los Angeles now. We're a national and technically international organisation. For context, how big is this problem globally? The numbers around prostitution, around 42 million women and people are in prostitution. Various studies show up to around 90% of people in prostitution are um, have pimps or under third party control, are there in a form of exploitation. Do the math, but th- those statistics around prostitution don't even include those in stripping or pornography and In many ways, pornography is a form of prostitution with a camera in the room that somehow changes the legality of that. But a lot of human trafficking is taking place in pornography as well. So the numbers are quite conservative. What we do know is this is a huge global problem. Wherever vulnerability exists, wherever the oppression of women exists, prostitution exists. And so it is a a huge problem. A significant percentage of of that 42 million are are underage, are children, which is in most countries immediately illegal. But for some reason, as soon as someone passes their 18th birthday, they go from being a victim of human trafficking to an empowered consenting sex worker. And we just know that's not the case at all. And that there are many women trapped in the sex industry as adults who entered by means of fraud, force and coercion, but people are they, they don't know enough about sex trafficking to see that and see the invisible chains keeping these women trapped in this industry. Is this the modern day slavery that no one wants to talk about? Yeah, well, if if you ever read Les Miserables by Victor Hugo, there's this incredible line uh, where he writes, we say that slavery has vanished from European civilization, but this is not true. Slavery still exists, but now it applies to women and its name is prostitution. And I think he really put his finger on the mark after the transatlantic slave trade was abolished, that that marked, in my opinion, a very significant a global cultural mindset shift where we went from um, see, as a civilization globally, slavery being 
permissible to understood as wrong. And we know that slavery still exists, but for the most part, there's an understanding of slavery as wrong, immoral, should be illegal. But when it comes to prostitution, there's a big disconnect in the minds of a lot of people that that is classified as slavery. And so a ton of this takes educating people on the realities of how people get into prostitution, that they are sex trafficked into this industry. For the most part, if you look at the fraud, force and coercion elements into it. And I think once people understand the coercive controlling nature of prostitution, they'll realize that a lot of people who are in it would legally be classified as a slave. So what are some of those misconceptions of how people get into prostitution? Because I think there is one line that we're sort of sold in media, but I think the reality is probably something quite different. I mean, what are you seeing as being the main drivers culturally to enter women into this dangerous situation? Well, according to most of the the media people read and people that I speak to on a regular basis, there is this understanding that, yeah, sex trafficking exists over here. It's a very different thing. It's very underground, shrouded in mystery and secrecy. Most people in prostitution, and we couldn't shouldn't even call it prostitution. We should call it sex work. And it should be classified as a legitimate job. Or so they would think they presume it's it's girls in college who are needing to make some extra cash on the side or girls who just love sex. They're very sexual and this is their dream job. And then they're, you know, they've got an online OnlyFans account on the side. They're hustling. They're making money. Like you go, girl, you make that money. You capitalize your sexuality. And so I think a lot of people don't actually take the time to really think through the dynamics of what might lead any young woman into prostitution. But there's right now in the the media a, a definite push to try and normalize, sanitize and legalize prostitution and rebrand it as sex work. I have been working in this field for 14 years. I got into it quite young as a volunteer, volunteering for an organization in Cambodia in 2009. And the things I I saw and the women that I worked with, the stories that I was told scarred my soul in such a deep, profound way in understanding how women, at least in Cambodia, had entered the sex industry. And then I began to realize this isn't just happening in this way in Cambodia. Um, And I've since worked in, in Russia and Brazil, all over the States, all over Europe, the UK. And some really common threads is that Trafficking is the exploitation of vulnerability. So within society, the most vulnerable populations of, in the US at least, the um, kids in or coming out of the foster care, those who are homeless or runaways, those who experience childhood sexual abuse. And so there's already a, a broken or dysfunctional relationship with their own sexuality, their own body. Right now, it's it's become to the degree of anyone with a Wi-Fi connection that's left unmonitored. Pimps and traffickers are finding um, teenagers online and grooming them onto meeting up with them. And so diligent parenting is desperately needed in order to prevent that aspect of vulnerability. And you do see, of course, those who have a great upbringing, who come from middle class or upper class families who are trafficked. And the, the Epstein story in the US was very sensational because it was this elite person I personally know a survivor of, of Epstein and she said that he he wasn't even the worst trafficker or sex buyer that she encountered. Like the, the violence of, of prostitution is, is is less about how wealthy the trafficker is, whether someone is exploited in a five-star hotel or in a car on the street in a half-star motel. The exploitation and the psychological 
damage is the same. I would just say the common thread is the exploitation of vulnerability. Most it's the choice of those with the fewest choices. Women who who are brought up with a lot of choices and education generally don't make the choice to enter prostitution. And it's typically single mothers or those who have been groomed by a pimp and are now completely under the control. Um, It's this invisible shackles where he is their master. He has psychologically groomed them. And there's there's a very manipulative grooming process that goes into being um, trafficked. And uh, I think a lot of people don't don't realize the the fear tactics, the psychological control tactics where a trafficker will take months if he needs to, to establish himself as her master. And it's very dark. I read a book called Pimpology by a pimping Ken, 48 ways to psychologically own, own a woman and make them be a prostitute for you um, is basically the tagline of this book. And it was one of the most dark, disturbing books I've ever read, but it gave a horrific insight into the psychological tactics at play in trafficking and prostitution, which is from the outside, someone might not be in a cage or shackled or physically locked into this industry, the the chains are in the mind. And that's something that is so important for people to understand. Mm. The, The grooming element is something that I find quite nefarious and really quite scary. Has that only intensified because of A, the internet, but B, the separation, the human disconnect that we have with each other that the internet has been able to propagate? 30 years ago, children and teenagers were not speaking to strangers every every day, that the amount of uh, open vulnerabilities for children to be having and, and young people to be speaking, speaking to strangers online is now a common and normal thing. I remember a couple of years ago, this this woman opened a Instagram account posing as a um, like an eleven year old or a thirteen year old girl, and her inbox was flooded by by men sending pictures of their genitals and coercive text messages trying to pressure them to send nudes. And she documented all of this and was horrified by uncovering that. I definitely think this is a very recent phenomena of the the level of, of vulnerabilities that we're having, and and even just the way that girls are socialised through social media to then see prostitution or pornography as a somehow empowering thing, and they think, well, as a young woman growing up, feminist Gail Dines say, says young girls are given the choice of being invisible or effable, and you have to make that that choice. And if you want to be seen and receive attention from your peers and boys commodifying your your sexuality and presenting yourself as a sexually appealing young girl is validated. And in the Instagram influencer age that's developed, I feel like, into this OnlyFans culture, we're seeing young girls self-sexualize from a place of of complete pressure from the male demand, the male gaze, um, society's pressure to say likes and approval online is the highest social currency. Mm, so funny. Every time I write something down that I'm going to ask you, you sort of cover it. Because uh, I have two teenage sons and we're very open about these sorts of conversations in this house because I'm very keen to raise two respectful young men. And I think men, both young men and young women today, are confused. Like they find it really difficult. And that oversexualization of young girls and you see it everywhere you see it I, I mean I wrote down there was that Netflix film that was out a few years ago cuties I mean that was almost soft porn and these were what 
11-year-olds. You know, it really is quite terrifying. And they're bombarded with this every day. They're bombarded it with it with culture, with music, with film. And it's only a slippery slope from, you know, the selfies, the makeup, the having fun with your girlfriends, the snaps and the Snapchats and the TikToks and what have you. And before you know it, they're into OnlyFans. And then we're heading into pornography. I mean, the line between pornography being seedy and unacceptable through to being perfectly legitimate and no more dangerous than doing a selfie on Instagram, that line seems to be very blurred. Is that beginning to blur for in the work that you're doing? Are you seeing that? So we made an investigative documentary about the porn industry. And so I think when talking about porn, OnlyFans is kind of a, a beast by itself. Then you have the traditional porn industry, brick and mortar studios that have ha- have pornography directors and agents recruiting and bringing girls in to make these films on set here in Los Angeles where I live. But what we've seen since... 2007 is a real explosion of pornography websites that operate kind of like YouTube channels of people can open their own accounts and upload videos. And so it's mostly user-generated pornography. A small percent of it is re, um, re-uploaded footage from pornography from the, the studios, the brick and mortar. But three years ago, we began to expose how Pornhub, which was at the time, the most famous porn site, porn company, and the company that owned Pornhub, MindGeek, owned about 80% of all online porn. So they had 115 million views every day, more views than uh, Amazon, Netflix. Like The level of dominance that this website had was, was huge. They had billboards in Times Square and pop-up shows, and that they'd really branded themselves as a um, kind of pop culture, mainstream, acceptable porn site, celebrity endorsements. And we exposed how even this porn site did not verify the age or consent of anyone who uploaded a video or the people in the video. And all all that was required was an email. They just wanted as much content as possible. So it was extremely easy to upload a video. They at one time had only around 30 moderators who were completely impossible to moderate these millions of videos that were uploaded onto their site. And case after case was coming out in the news, in the media about underage girls who'd been found on on Pornhub who who were trafficked, who were missing, stories of survivors who said my underage teenage rape was uploaded to Pornhub and it was a six-month struggle to get it taken down. But meanwhile, it's been re-uploaded to hundreds of other porn sites in that six months. And the feeling of terrorism against women and girls who are having the worst, most traumatic moment of their life of being um, raped being uploaded onto a porn site, like the the ethical outrage of that situation. And these porn sites saying, well, we're not responsible. It was someone else who uploaded it. Um, And then trying to be dismissive, say, oh, it's just this moral crusade against us. They were very dismissive of of us and other organizations that started speaking out against this. And we started this campaign called Trafficking Hub saying like demanding that Pornhub took accountability that there was some justice and restitution for these victims whose lives had been destroyed by the videos of them being trafficked or raped being uploaded onto the website yeah in 2020 all year this campaign grew and grew and massive awareness was raised it became this grassroots movement two million people signed a petition 34 million people watched this little video that we made on it and then the new york times reached out and as a result of an article and investigation that they wrote, Pornhub decided to delete 80% of their entire website. 10 million unverified videos. 
they were forced to delete and they blamed our, our organization in their statement. They basically gave us the credit for that happening. And then around 200 plus survivors have been able to sue Pornhub, bring civil litigations against them, demanding justice, saying this has ruined my life, that the permanent immortalized trauma that this website has caused me. And so I think that in the, the evolution of pornography becoming such so accessible, you know, that there's no age barriers on any of these sites. So any eight-year-old with a Wi-Fi connection and Google who Googles sex will be led straight to Pornhub and be seeing videos of acted rape or real rape, racist videos, gangbang videos, some of the worst genres you could possibly imagine. And there's zero protection. So we've become really invested in wanting to protect minors from accessing these sites and then enforce and call for the, the age and consent of people in videos being being forced to be verified. So pornography, I feel like right now in our culture, in Europe, in the States, I know in Australia as well, I'm not sure about New Zealand, but this is um, that the, the conversation on age verification is really bubbling to the surface of culture. And the US has introduced in 22 states, age verification bills have been introduced in the last year. And so in three years of us campaigning, we're suddenly seeing this enter the mainstream conversation like, hmm, this wild, wild west porn industry, big porn, it needs to be regulated. Absolutely. And I mean, we've seen it. I mentioned before we got started, we've just had the 20-year anniversary of decriminalisation of prostitution here. And I didn't realise until speaking with Denise and then Ali and, and also I've spoken to Gloria Masters as well, that decriminalization actually creates this Wild West environment where you don't you're not completely legal, but you're not illegal. So you sit in the middle and literally hell ensues. It is actually quite important to get that legislation rock solid. Because without mm -hmm. it, if you just do a softball approach, it, it actually could potentially make the problem worse, not better. It is quite terrifying. The pandemic, when everyone was locked up in their houses, Pornhub honestly must have been writing bank on that, I would have thought. I mean, this would be, for them, what, a multi-billion dollar business? Yeah. They offered um, free subscriptions to those in on in, in lockdown, starting with Italy, and then they became, uh, they offered it universally. Like, the videos that you normally had to pay for, you could get for free, but it was really a marketing ploy to get more people to their site because they get ad money, uh, ad revenue, or, or at least they did. The credit card companies have now cut ties with them completely for that. But yeah, I, I, it was such a strange year in 2020 because you saw porn use increase. And then you also saw this huge awareness of the harms of porn, the addictive nature of porn, the ethical violations taking place online and in the porn industry. And that awareness has then created bills around pornography that might not have even been able to pass five years ago. So I, I'm seeing the general direction in a positive way, or at least I'm trying to stay positive. The full decrim law that just in 2003 to so 23 years, 20 years ago that passed, one of the things that, that saddens me the most about that is a lot of ignorant groups in America still hold New Zealand up as this gold standard of we want full decrim too and most people don't really like pretty much everyone in the anti-trafficking community is all about decriminalizing the women in prostitution no one wants exploited people to be taken into jail so we would never arrest a victim of domestic violence so just because that's happening on the street or in a hotel under the control of a pimp like people in prostitution should not be criminalized they should be offered e exit services and understood that the majority of them are 
either being exploited or in survival. What New Zealand did was it decriminalized the sex buyers, the brothel managers, the pimps, the third parties. And it was an act of misplaced compassion, trying to destigmatize, trying to provide the most supportive environment for people being exploited in prostitution. But what it actually created is a normalization and sanitization culturally of prostitution. And so if you're a sex buyer, if something is a felony level or extreme violent crime or it's completely legal, that's completely going to impact your mindset on it and your behavior. And I actually earlier today, I went on some escorting websites in New Zealand. I wanted to see um, if there was any difference in comparing them to what we see here in the US. There were categories of on the front page, um, Asian women or non-Asian women. So just from the back, I've never seen that before, a website advertising a whole category of Asian women. The uh, Landlords, hotels were encouraged to advertise their business to essentially be, you can be a brothel, uh, you can make some extra money as a landlord on our website, advertise your property for sex buyers to to utilize and, and meet up with women at. And so just even, even five minutes on that website, just made me consider how when you legalize something, you normalize it. And when it comes to sex buying, that demand is at the root of sex trafficking. There was no demand, there'd be no sex trafficking. If every man today stopped buying women and children in in the sex industry, trafficking would end today. And we know that's not going to happen overnight, but that is the goal. How do we, to shrink sex trafficking, you have to shrink the demand in the sex industry. And I believe it, it is not a human right that a man who doesn't have a girlfriend is entitled to sex and so they can pay for her silence purchase her consent it's an incredibly misogynistic mindset that thinks that it's a a human right for a man to um to have uh, the sex slave experience because let's be real they're not wanting a girlfriend they're not wanting an autonomous relationship most of them are buying a power dynamic where they're in control they're choosing the sex acts it's not about her it's not about her pleasure like they they couldn't care less they're purchasing her as a blow-up sex doll to masturbate in they're buying a sex slave experience whether that's for 30 minutes or all night and a lot of people don't really consider the dehumanization of prostitution and how a woman every single day having to sleep with 10 to 20 uh, men who she has zero sexual desire for the psychological implications how she disassociates in order to escape or develops a substance abuse addiction to to numb the the trauma of that the levels of violence and misogyny we actually just made a documentary about sex buyers who we interviewed and we asked them questions like if you'd known she was a trafficking victim would you have stopped that encounter stopped that purchase and they their response was not really like in that moment you don't care about her her story like all you're thinking about is yourself, the selfishness, the entitlement. You, you don't see her as a human. She is a commodity there for mm. your pleasure. If you're paying her, she, she's not a human. That was essentially the rhetoric that came forth. And so some things I, I really want people to think about is the power dynamic in prostitution. And in the Me Too movement, we we exposed how utterly unethical that was in, in the workplace when you have sexual harassment, unequal power dynamics in sexual relationships is not okay. Prostitution is the most extreme version of that. My deepest hope is that New Zealand would adopt the Nordic model, the abolitionist model that started in Sweden in uh, 1999. I visited Sweden last year, investigated this law, and that takes the partial decriminalization approach of still keeping exploited people 
decriminalized, offering them services, housing, um, the needed resources to to get out of that situation if they want to. But it heavily criminalizes the sex buyers, the pimps, the third parties with the goal of shrinking the sex industry and eliminating demand. When I was there in Sweden, a lot of people told me when I asked them that law had a significant impact on the culture and that young men growing up in Sweden understand it's a human rights violation to purchase someone's consent, that sex and money should never go together. And that if you're having to coerce someone with money, they're not giving their full enthusiastic mutual consent. And when it comes to sex, that is very important. That's central. Anything less than mutual enthusiastic consent and agency is a form of exploitation. And so my hope is that as more and more people in New Zealand understand the harmful ramifications of full decrim, learn more about the Swedish law, that that would be something they would consider adopting. Mm. I know uh, Denise said it was really interesting. One of the things that they changed was when a sex buyer was caught, that the fines initially were sent, they would often get them sent to work, and they changed the law to force that fine to be sent home. And a number of them were in relationships and marriages. So then if that fine turned up at home, that was a very, very quick, easy and effective deterrent to actually stop them from doing it because they didn't want their wives and partners to find out what they'd been up to. I mean, it seems so simple. And there are so many different facets to the cycle that even breaking one of those will go a long way to actually help women in a vulnerable situation. And whether it be improving the quality of relationships, good, healthy relationships, because I worry that the overuse of pornography, the permissiveness of behaviours and the normalisation of behaviours, particularly around children, has become so prevalent that if you've got uh, a man especially engaging in the industry to get gratification, how on earth are they ever going to develop a normal, healthy, consensual sexual relationship? It is, it's quite concerning. We created a, a documentary called Raised on Porn that's all about the impact on the minds, the behaviours, the bodies of, of people who have who are addicted to porn, but essentially were exposed as children, which is the majority. And in one of the interviews, we interviewed a a girl who said her first boyfriend, age 16, their first sexual relationship, all he'd ever known about sex was through porn. And so he described that his 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 fantasy was to do this, this you know, pornographic fantasy-inspired idea called a, a cherry sundae, which involved punching her in the face, causing a nosebleed, and then finishing on her face. And he said it. the whole thing is it has to be a surprise. So it's like, I'll, I'll do it and you won't even know. It'll be over in a second. And she was just so horrified, broke up with him immediately because she was like, I I was terrified that he was going to do that. And at what point did he think that that was ever okay in, in a sexual relationship to punch your girlfriend in the face to cause her a nosebleed? Like the normalization of violence in porn, because so much of porn nowadays shows an act of aggression towards women, whether that's choking, strangling, pulling their hair, um, very violent language. It, it's it, If that's your sex education, that completely normalizes those behaviors. We worked with a, a, a domestic violence organization in LA who were protesting outside the Pornhub office with us during 2020. And they were like so concerned that pornography normalizes violence in the minds of young boys growing up and that they're going to take that into relationships. And now Many girls expect to be choked and strangled as part of a a sexual relationship, 
because that's what they've seen in porn and, and vice versa with boys. Mm. The film The Sound of Freedom, which has, through word of mouth and grassroots communication, has become uh, very well watched. Has that helped start conversations and get breakthrough for you to actually allow that kernel of conversation to actually start to expose the wider nature of this problem? Has that been positive? Yeah, I feel like every few years we see a, a a wave of awareness around the topic of sex trafficking or pornography in a kind of intense way and taking something like this film that has done incredibly well at the box office. A lot of people have seen it. Um, it's like the movie Taken. I am so grateful for the awareness that that movie brought, even though not everything in that film is exactly what trafficking looks like. Similarly, Sound of Freedom, they're taking one specific type of trafficking and case that isn't actually the norm of what we see like most child trafficking is 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 family members um, or someone they know and not a stranger not a kidnapping situation so I think my I'm sad that there's not more more awareness on more of the other more common types of trafficking that happening but all of us in the anti-trafficking movement are very committed to still bringing that education but I'm so grateful for the conversation starters for just anything that gets people talking about this, opens their eyes. Um, the film was really beautifully made, really high quality, and that's great as well because the last thing you want is a film about human trafficking that's really badly acted, really poorly produced. So the fact that it was so well made and is doing so well, and I, I hope that the, the zealous moviegoers who come out of seeing that film passionate about stopping this issue actually then go on to research the local organisations in their city and and state or country doing the work and then can get involved. Uh, But we definitely, yeah, are hoping that that is what will happen, that every person who sees the film will be activated to to get involved somehow. Mm. The show that I do here is around um, culture. And so one of the things we cover quite a bit here is sort of woke culture or critical social justice. And that movement has been quite permissive around extreme sexual behaviour or, of course, obviously the trans movement is something that they're very vocal about. How do they feel about the work that you do? I mean, do you fall foul of them or they say, yeah, Helen, this is a great cause. We're going to get behind it and and be an ally in what it is that you're trying to do. Where where do they sit on the spectrum? Because they're a Fickle and Fay crew and you're in California. So I'm picking that you would come across more than your fair share. I think the majority of humans are... Uh, or I would like to think that the majority of, of people would would see human trafficking as bad. So starting on that premise, uh, whatever their value system is, wherever they they fall politically on the left or the right, or if they have a, a, a faith as, that impacts their outlook on protections of children or whatever their 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 value system is, I always try and find that bridge, meet them where they're at, and have a conversation that takes. From the premise of if we agree that human trafficking is bad, then let's start let's here. About all the other factors and policy that's needed, I think it can become very harmful if if an issue like human trafficking becomes fully owned by the left or the right. I think it needs to be always a bipartisan issue that both sides can agree on because if it's a human rights issue, it's like slavery. We need 
the whole of civilization and society to see that as wrong. There are definitely some fringe groups in society that are wanting to advocate for, I mean, a lot of it comes down to even Alfred Kinsey's teaching on childhood sexuality and believing that children can be sexual. And so this whole idea of we should protect children from exposure to hardcore porn till they're at least 18. There are some people that are like, well, I think, I think children are inherently sexual and you should give them the options to explore that. And schools should be including that in their sex ed approach. That's a very troubling perception to me, especially when you see the rates of child sexual abuse and even peer on peer child sexual abuse. I think children's innocence needs to be protected for as long as possible. Sexual exploration uh, to be protected for as long as possible. And anyone who would argue that children should be having sex with each other that would be a more challenging conversation because our, our our worldviews at that point are so misaligned. But I, I think that some people, they just, they go along with what their tribe in culture is kind of normalizing. But when you actually have a conversation over a dinner table in an Uber car or wherever the, the, the conversation is taking place, I speak to a lot of parents who feel very protective over their children. And so that's influencing their views on pornography and anyone I talk to about prostitution, when I tell them my experiences of working with women and what the truth is of the reality of prostitution, everyone who I've talked to about the Swedish model concludes of that is definitely the most reasonable and effective approach. So, so much of education comes from real human conversations that you like. I could disagree with you on so many other topics in culture and or politics or whatever, but I think that this is something that everyone should be on the same page about. Um, if, if they are a decent human being who believes that slavery is wrong. You've given us a tremendous, you've actually a lot to think about, and you've referred to a lot of videos and resources. So someone's been listening to this, they're aware, they're thinking, I need to know more about this. Or as you mentioned before, the most common way that women and children are trafficked are via family. So often when that is the case, someone within a family or whanau, as they're often referred to in this country, will be aware that something just isn't quite right. Where can they go to get those initial resources if they need to start doing some research themselves and starting some conversations? Yeah, I think that's such a good question and something that I would encourage for anyone, like take take a minute to educate yourself on this topic um, because then you can be a force for good in your sphere of influence and you can educate others and that's an essential part of, of improving culture for good. So on our website, we have a ton of really helpful information, statistics, petitions people can sign. If you, ha- if you have an Instagram account, follow us at Exodus Cry on Instagram or other social media platforms. Um, we have a bunch of free documentaries, including one that was bought by Netflix, you can view it on Netflix. Others are on YouTube, Amazon. So if you go to exoduscry.com slash watch, all of our films. Uh, we have short educational videos as well that anyone can use or show anywhere. And some books that we would recommend. We have a blog. So um, we're releasing articles um, and writing up about these subjects regularly. We want to be a messaging machine that helps educate and, and then provides resources that other people can then take and um, use that to educate. If anyone is involved in outreach, we have a training manual on that I wrote on how to do outreach. Um, to people in the sex industry, how to get started, how to, um, to to reach those, whether it's online or in physical brothels or strip clubs or anything like that. 
we we really do want to offer up these resources to educate and shift culture like awareness not just for the sake of awareness but for shifting culture and when you can shift culture that shifts policy because the people actually are bringing things to people in power demanding change so please check out our website extracry.com there's a lot of great information and anyone who's struggling with a pornography addiction or their spouse or a loved one or a child is we have a whole dedicated section of the website to all the best resources specifically for that as well this has been so excellent to talk to you i really do appreciate your time today helen this topic feels immense I guess it's like an elephant. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And I guess that's what you're having to do, isn't it? Um, just tackle these things yeah. one bite at a time. And I really do appreciate your time today to talk to us about that. And if, as I said before, if you've got any questions whatsoever, or if you want to actually do a bit of research, exoduscry.com. And don't forget to look at our other interviews and content on this issue. So I've just recently spoken to Ellie Marie Diamond from Wahini Tour Rising, uh, Denise Ritchie from Stop Demand, also to Gloria Masters. Uh, so you can talk to any, or have a look at any of those interviews. They are at our realitycheck.radio page backslash replays. Click on counterculture and you will find those interviews there. So thank you so much, Helen. I really do appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a pleasure coming on and speaking to you and all the best with um, yeah, future interview radio uh, shows. Great. Thanks, Helen. And if you've got any comments at all that you'd like to leave us about this interview, inbox at realitycheck.radio. And of course, the text is 2057. More coming up, including work news of the week. And of course, Marty's along with Media Matters. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.